Hello and greetings. Thank you for your interest in spiritual matters. My name is Ethan Longhenry and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples on the west side of Los Angeles. As human beings, we seek to find meaning in existence in all things. I'm sure at some point in your life you've asked the question, who am I and why am I here? I have, and that those questions have pressed strongly on the minds of people as one, long as they've been able to wonder about existence. And so, we do well to explore the question, what is life all about? Now, if we uh, are Christians, we recognize that the true answer to the question, something we can see uh, in John 17, 20-23, that we are to be one with God uh, and to be one with one another so we can truly enjoy eternal life. Because God has made us in His image in Genesis chapter 1, and He desires to maintain a relationship with His offspring, whom we are in Acts 17. We've strayed from the ways of God, however. We're subject to sin and death, but we are thankful that God has reconciled us to Him through Jesus. And both of these things are well established in Romans chapters 3 and 5. In Christ, we find reconciliation with God, the right, good, and healthy way to live. It's a call for resistance against the forces of darkness over this present age, and the ability to have true reconciliation with our fellow man, as we can see in Ephesians 2 and 4 and 6. It's in Christ that we have the hope of resurrection and eternal life in the presence of God in Philippians 3 and Revelation 21 and 22. Now, if you're a Christian, you've been a Christian any length of time, you know these things, right? I know these things, you know these things, we know these things. But do we live like it? Has this knowledge that we have in our head really penetrated our heart and our actions? Because unfortunately, we all too often give lip service what we know is true from what God has made known in Scripture. While in practice, we've capitulated to alternative meanings for life that we found in culture and from other sources. And we shouldn't find this surprising. We shouldn't beat ourselves up terribly much over it because the pull toward worldly ways of thinking is great and a lot of people remain wedded to them. And so that we can exhort one another toward relational unity with God and one another, we do well to expose the various purposes in life that have been made ultimate in the world that are offered as substitutes to the ideas of God in Christ. And so today, let's consider a very prominent such one in our society, work. Is life all about work? To be clear, work in some form or another has been a major aspect of life for humans since, uh, well, began. In Genesis 2 and verse 15, uh, man worked even the garden. Before sin and death entered the world, uh, God made man in the garden to keep it and to tend it. Now, for the vast majority of human history, uh, for most people, work meant subsistence farming, putting forth effort to cultivate enough land to provide enough food for the family, with maybe a little bit left over for some supplies and to pay other people off. Uh, In some parts of the world, the lifestyle continues to this very day. And those who did not work in subsistence farming would generally apply some kind of craft or trade. They may have been scribes or blacksmiths, potters, soldiers, or things like that. And most such people had a social element to their work. They would interact with their clients or customers or fellow workers. You can imagine 200 years ago, if you needed something from the blacksmith, and the blacksmith finished it, you would not just go to see him and transact business. You would likely have a cup of tea or some such thing and have a conversation as well. It was all a part of the way that society maintained itself. A lot of forms of employment served as part of the community fabric. But with the Industrial Revolution, uh, we have a complete transformation in the nature and dynamics of what we call work. 
First and foremost, wherever industrialization has taken place, cities have grown at the expense of rural lands. More and more people are urban or suburban, and fewer and fewer work in agriculture. Efficiency, above all things, is prized in the Industrial Revolution, and so many a craft or skill has been reduced to rote mechanization to complete as many things as quickly as possible at the least possible cost. Now today, you hear a lot of conversations in the news about concerns about globalization, concerns about automation. There is this fear that uh, all of the jobs are going to be shipped overseas or are going to be done by computers somehow, or robots. These are perhaps well-founded concerns, but they're not new, because in fact the entire story of the Industrial Revolution, from its beginning till now, has been the search for the cheapest labor or the elimination of labor entirely in favor of machines. And that's why industry has moved many places, and that's why after it can't move any more places, we see uh, machines doing the work that people used to do. Now, the capital benefits of industry, all the money, has gone to the select few who own the factories and the processes. Now, those who work for them may have been better off than they were on the farm, but until recent times, not by much. And so the Industrial Revolution has led to this modern corporate system in which a few are the owners or managers and the many are the quote-unquote regular employees. The work of the regular employees may not be slavery, but often it can feel like it. And there's a lot of far-reaching implications for the Industrial Revolution for the way we look at work. Uh, For most people, work is a job. It's something they do in order to earn money. They'd much rather be doing something else. Work time also features, features almost no rest or leisure time, although the number of people who search the internet for various things as opposed to working is no doubt high. Uh, nevertheless, there remains this complete distinction between work life and personal life. Work is not designed to keep a community together. In fact, a lot of communities today are suffering strong and terrible crises because of the disruption that's come because of changes in employment trends. We think about the Rust Belt in the middle of America. We think of other such things. Uh, Even if a community has a lot of thriving centers of employment, uh, these different forms of work don't necessarily help bind the community together, uh, but depend on extra hours of community service to do so, sometimes encouraged or even paid for by some of those employers. Along with other social trends, though, this impetus toward efficiency and search for maximum benefit has erased any sense of loyalty. Employers keep employees as long as they provide great benefits, and they constantly look for ways to get the same or more work out of people for less. Likewise, employees will only stick with a job as long as they don't find anything better. And if they find something better, uh, they will do that as soon as they can uh, so they can better themselves. Most recently, we're hearing about the development what's called the gig economy. And it's not helping this at all, because in the gig economy, a corporation can get all the benefit of productivity from workers without bearing any of the liabilities of insurance, health care, parental leave, disability, and so on. And that leaves workers completely exposed to any sort of downturn or deprivation. And even the way we look at society, spouses, children, hobbies, community service, even religious beliefs are now liabilities in the workplace. They're not assets because of how great your employees are. Instead, they hinder effectiveness and efficiency. Uh, Such people may need time. Uh, You may have to take off time. Uh, You may be distracted by things going on with those people. Uh, You may have annoying religious beliefs that may hinder you from doing a few things or not working Sunday, and so on and so forth. And for this reason, there are a lot of very unhealthy dynamics currently at play. Corporate versus labor versus community interests dominate the narrative. It's now oppositional. Employers are rarely having the best interests of their employees at heart. 
their desire seems to make more profit than ever. Employees care very little about their job often. Their desire is just to make money. Conditions for human thriving, like family and service, are seen as liabilities anymore, causing either employment problems or the delay or elimination uh, of developing family or service. A lot of people just aren't getting married or not having kids because they feel like they can't afford to. They don't have that luxury or that opportunity. And people are so busy working and doing other things, there's no time to serve in the community anymore. Or so they say. And we can understand this. Who among us believes they've really struck a healthy work-life balance? It's very hard to find people to say that. I certainly can't say it. I don't think a lot of people can say that as well. And work has proven all important in our society. That our worth is tied into our job. After all, how do we rate how well the economy is doing? By the GDP, the gross domestic product. That is, the things that they produce and create. Employers have found it all the easier to expect and demand more time out of employees, be it through work emails uh, on personal time, which a lot of people see no problem in having to just deal with on personal time, or flex scheduling, which for a lot of those who work in the service and retail uh, industries means that they can be called into work with almost no notice and therefore cannot truly plan on any true personal or leisure time. Because production, after all, is most important as an efficiency. You think about higher education. Theoretically, higher education is the cultivation of a liberal educated, liberal education, excuse me, to provide for a well-educated and discerning citizenry. But now it's just really seen as job training for corporate America. You go to get a degree so you can go find a job. Uh, and the, the nature of the type of education being uh, received has suffered accordingly. What is feminism wrought for the average American female? Well, the big goal is the opportunity to find meaning in life through a career, as if meaning could not be found in the home or in service somewhere else. How do we look at the unemployed? The caricature of the unemployed is a loafer, someone who chooses not to have a job and just wants to live on the government dole. How do we look at those who have taken upon themselves to care for their children, for the ill or for the elderly? If they're not getting paid for it, they don't have, quote-unquote, real jobs. They're not, quote-unquote, providing for the family. They're not, quote-unquote, helping the bottom line. And, of course, we could always uh, have the joke there about the preacher and not having a real job and just works a couple week hours a week, right? Because that's what it seems uh, in the eyes of many. And so we live in a time and an age when society and an employer would love for you to make your life all about work. And far too many times we prove willing to indulge them. So that's kind of the lay of the land that we see. And, and when we look in Scripture, we can see value in work. Man, as we said, was made to work the Garden of Eden in Genesis 2 and verse 15. So that impulse to work comes before the fall. So it's something that's good. Man was made to work. And we should not be surprised to see that man identifies himself in terms of his work. Especially with men, when unacquainted men meet each other, after identifying a name and maybe a couple other identity markers, what do you do? Invariably follows. That's how we kind of define ourselves. A lot of people's last names are really derived from crafts or trade, like Smith or Brewer or Butler, that testifying to their importance. One of the most dehumanizing things the Nazis did to Jewish people, among others, was to employ them in futile work, to dig a ditch one day only to fill it back in the next, and things like that, in the concentration camps. And for many, this was the breaking point. Uh, they had endured everything else, but suicides would go up when doing such futile work because uh, they were stripped of meaning even in their efforts and their labor. 
And not a few studies have indicated the very high emotional and psychological cost of persistent or long-term unemployment, especially among men. And what that does to the ego and to the psyche because they're no longer able to do what they're supposed to do. They're not able to meet their responsibilities. And it becomes, in many ways, soul-crushing. For this reason, the preacher in Ecclesiastes 5 and verse 18 does counsel mankind to find enjoyment in his labor, to do the best he can in what he can find, and to find enjoyment in the labor that he does in his short life under the sun. And it is worth pointing out in 2 Thessalonians 3 that the apostle does have to address the dangers of idleness. Um, the Thessalonian Christians were to labor diligently in their work as they saw Paul and his associates work themselves. And the dictate was, li was laid down um, that if a man will not work, neither let him eat in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. And the concern there, Paul has, is idleness. That those who do not busy themselves in some kind of labor direct their restless energy to destructive tendencies like gossip, slander, and things of that nature. He says the same thing about uh, concern about younger widows in 1 Timothy 5, 11 through 15. Uh, they should go and marry because if they don't marry and they're just put on uh, or financial support list for the congregation, they go about as busybodies and gossips and they do the devil's work. And that's why it is good for Christians to work, to occupy themselves in fruitful labor. There is absolutely no problem with that. It is something that should be expected. Now, when we Christians tend to critique work, though, we tend to do so in terms of two things. We tend to uh, critique the nature of certain professions and in terms of participation in the assembly. We want to talk about work. Okay, what kind of job can a Christian do? What kind of job can a Christian not do? And so we want to warn against any kind of profession where a Christian would be compelled to commit sin or to endanger his or her commitment to the Lord Jesus. So we have jokingly condemn the lawyer and the politician because they have to lie so much, right? Or they have to defend uh, a person even if they think they're guilty. Uh, we also recognize the immorality in all aspects of prostitution, recreational drug creation, distribution, hitmen, conmen, and other such uh, professions, so to speak. We really emphasize the danger in taking any job that will require work on Sundays, especially Sunday morning, and the dangers of forsaking the assembly, and, which is a, a valid concern based on Hebrews 10.25, although some will go so far as to be afraid of people abandoning their Christianity for that same reason. And I don't want to dismiss these. These do pose concerns, because we shouldn't, as Christians, be in, ex involved in immoral or illicit labor. And we should prioritize the assembling of the saints when we look for employment to the best of our ability. But it's very interesting to note that in the New Testament, we don't find lists of acceptable versus unacceptable jobs. The concerns that we have about the assembly and employment are things that we derive from things like Hebrews 10.25. They're not explicitly established in the text. Not trying to suggest it doesn't mean they're, un means they're unimportant or that they're invalid. It's just to point out that this is not the emphasis. Instead, in the New Testament, we do see uh, a, a much more stronger emphasis on whether we can glorify God in Christ in our labor or whether our job has become our idol. And so in Ephesians chapter uh, 6, for instance, 
uh, 5 through 9. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. And in Colossians 3, 22-4, we have a similar message. Uh, now, slaves, masters, you can talk about employees and employers, but notice that there, as in these, both these passages, the emphasis is being put on glorifying God, serving Jesus in these uh, forms of work. So work itself is not the problem. Making work the ultimate thing is our problem. And as we've seen, uh, work has become a major idol of the world, and we easily fall prey to its temptation. When we define ourselves in terms of what we produce, or how much money we make, and our estimation of ourselves varies based on our productivity, then work has become our idol. If things are going great, we feel great about ourselves. Uh, if things are going terrible, we feel awful about ourselves. That means we've tied our identity too much into our labor. There's going to be seasons where things are going great, seasons where things are not going well, and yet we still have the ability to stand before God regardless. Uh, our standing before God is not validated because of how great things are going. Our standing before God has not been undercut because things are not going well. When busyness is the new measuring stick of value and importance, and now boasting the hours of numbers worked is a new measure of manliness, well, I worked 85 hours last week, uh, then work has become our idol, because that is the one thing we're driving for. That's the one thing we're single-mindedly pursuing. Likewise, if we judge others and their value on the basis of their production and labor, we think less of those whose jobs involve more menial labor, or we think that those who... Uh, for various reasons are not able to work are, are of less importance uh, then work has become our idol because now that's the prism through which we look at everybody judge everybody and value everybody and that can be a very dangerous thing indeed and all of these are tempting precisely because they are as we've mentioned the way the world works these days and for not a few companies anymore the goal is for their employees to craft their entire lives around their work and its pursuit and this is very dangerous. Now, it is true that there is a pull of distraction with entertainment and social media, and that is its own form of idleness. And that is definitely there. And we don't want to dismiss that. We cannot neglect a pressing need to address the pull of workaholism. A lot of us prove very easy prey to workaholism. We feel this anxiety that we're not doing enough. We're not producing enough. We get fear getting... Uh, the acts that we're going to be fired because we're not getting enough done. If we run into problems in life, somebody gets sick, somebody dies, uh, we're going through uh, relationship troubles or things of that nature, we're, our coping mechanism is to try to buckle down and work more, forcing ourselves through through work. And if all we ever communicate to others is how busy we are, we, 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 we're, I'm busy, I'm busy, I'm too busy, I'm always busy, how are you doing? Well, I'm busy. Uh, sometimes we find idle time, maybe. And if we, there's idle time, we just feel compelled. We've got to fill it with something. We've got to find some kind of work to do with it. Now, I think a lot of us will intellectually recognize these things, but are we willing to admit their presence in our lives? Can we admit when we have proven willing to make our lives all about our work? Because the consequences of the idolatry of work are severe. The preacher pursued work in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 11 and 18 through 26. He worked hard. He, he, he worked real hard. He built all kinds of great things. 
But he realized in doing that they could provide ultimate meaning. Everything that we work for is a vanity, a striving after wind. Because we build it, somebody else may tear it down. If nobody tears down, even the forces of nature will eventually wear it down. And anything we obtain, anything we accrue to ourselves from all of our labor will just be squandered by descendants. That's what the fate is of all the work that we have put in under the sun. There's a reason for the well-worn adage that no one on their deathbed wishes they put in a few extra hours at the office. Because whenever work is made an idol, the whole community suffers. As we mentioned earlier, some delay marriage or having children because of work. Some never get married or some never have get children because it's just never the right time because of uh, their current work situation. Uh, Harry Chapin's Cats in the Cradle is a terribly humbling song for any parent. It's evocative. It's stirring. It, it causes great uh, emotional duress for many people. Uh, today, just like when it was released in 1974. Because how many times have people thrown themselves into their work, did not set aside time for their children as a group? The, the child wants to go play catch. You can't play catch. you got to get work done. Your, your kid wants to show you something. You don't have time because you got to get this or this done. And by the time you have time, well, they've grown up and moved away. They don't have time for you anymore. And the cycle repeats itself. When people are only valued for their production... It's very, hard to prove, it's very hard to build community or to share with them. And when generation after generation arises who are parented by nannies, parented by television, by schools or not at all, why should we be surprised when so many follow the ways of the world or turn to unhealthy coping mechanisms to deaden the pain of that missed or broken relationship with their parents they never had because their parents were just too busy? How many people wonder who would love them or even if they were unlovable? if it were not for what they produced. That if I stopped doing what I did, would anybody be there for me? Would anybody love me? Would anybody care for me? And how many are still hurt because they felt their parents' love was dependent upon their performance? How many people walk around deeply wounded inside feeling that mom or dad or both were never satisfied because they just didn't do enough? How many feel that way in terms of their spouse? or in terms of others. And this is not merely a problem for the salaried worker. In fact, if anything, it's more pressing for the entrepreneur, those who devote themselves to worthy causes and nonprofit organizations, and especially preachers. Uh, there's been not a few preachers who have spent so much time devoting themselves to saving other people, uh, having but finds that his own children uh, are put away from the faith because of the lack of attention they received. And perhaps even their marriages are in trouble for similar reasons. So put crudely, the idolatry of work leads a person really to become Ebenezer Scrooge, if you think about it, from A Christmas Carol. Somebody who is devoted to their labor, only thing they think about is their labor. The value of everybody is based upon how well they pay and how well they work. And that's all they are in life. And who wants to be Ebenezer Scrooge? Nobody, really. So what then shall we say to these things according to what God has made known in Christ? We do well to recognize that as it goes with people in general, so it goes with work. It's fallen, but it can be redeemed in Christ. As we said, yes, the impulse to work in Genesis 2 was made before man fell, but in the fall, in verse chapter 3, 17-19 of Genesis, work, which is a good thing in man's purpose in the garden, was now cursed, subjected to corruption, futility, and decay. The preacher has said that there is good in work, but it's ultimately futile. It cannot provide full meaning in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. And so the Christian is called upon to labor, and to labor diligently, 
but they need to make sure their labor is in Christ, even as unto Christ, and to therefore keep their priorities straight. In the flesh, Jesus came as a carpenter's son in Matthew 13, verse 55. Uh, the nature of those kind of professions and apprenticeships, uh, he no doubt participated in that trade with his earthly father. We know from Matthew 4:18, Peter and John were fishermen. Paul was not only a tent maker by trade, but we see in Acts 18, right in the middle of his ministry, he'd ply that trade for a time in order to uh, make a living for himself so he could continue to preach the gospel. And so Christians are to work, absolutely, as we saw in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. But not merely for the sake of work, but to provide sufficiently for themselves and their household. In 1 Timothy 5.8, not to do so is to be worse than an unbeliever, but also to have some to give to others in need in Ephesians 4 and verse 28 as an example. The closest that the New Testament comes to speaking about employer-employee relationships is in terms of master and slave, and that's a comparison a bit too accurate for people in Ephesians 5, 6-9 as we've read, and also in Colossians 3, 22 and 4, 1. And we notice there, the slave is to work heartily as to the Lord, looking to receive recompense from the Lord. He, the master is remember that he has a master in heaven, and he's supposed to treat his servants accordingly. And so our work cannot be divorced from our personal life or our relationships. Our Christianity must influence our work. And so this certainly means we need to take opportunities to talk about the Lord Jesus and the importance of serving him as possible and as appropriate, according to the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 18-20. It means that we must not do anything in our employment that's going to be contrary to the will of God in, Christ, God in Christ and to obey God rather than men in Acts 5, 29. We need to go further. We can't let work become our idol. We need to prioritize and privilege our relationships and their health because we really can't expect our employer to do that. And that absolutely includes our relationship with brethren, the need to assemble. But are we making time to spend with brethren on other occasions to build them up and to build them up in turn, as is the purpose of our work in Ephesians 4, 11 through 16? Do we have functioning, healthy relationships with our friends, parents, spouse, and children? Are we willing to set up boundaries with our employers to be able to maintain those relationships? And are we willing to accept that we may lose our employment with certain places because of that? And we've read in Ephesians 6, 5 through 9, before then, 5, 22 through 6, 4, Paul's emphasis is on showing Christ in the marriage and uh, uh, parent-child relationship. We can't neglect those just because we need to work. We need to find ways of serving God and Christ in all of them. Do we have time that we dedicate to doing good to others, especially those of the household of faith in Galatians 6.10? Do we value others based on their work or performance? Or do we love others despite their performance, always remembering that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly in Romans 5.6-11, that God loved us despite our performances and despite our deeds? Would people in our workplaces know we are Christians by how we diligently put forth our effort into our work, how we remain humble, how we serve, and we reflect his values? Or if they found out we were a Christian, would that come to a as a surprise to them, an indictment of our hypocrisy? Do people know how important they are to us? Or do they keep their distance because we are always busy and they don't want to be a bother? I fall in this trap myself personally. A lot of times I had, I felt like I needed to be busy to uh, let everybody know I was doing things so that they didn't think I wasn't worthy of my hire. And that backfired significantly because now people won't come to talk because they don't think I have time for them. And so we need to be very careful about how we talk about being busy. And to make it clear in our communication that despite all the efforts we are uh, doing, that people matter to us. And we are willing to set aside other priorities and to privilege people. 
And that's also sometimes a difficulty as well for a lot of people uh, in the ministry uh, to recognize that sometimes, many times, your work is done and we've made other plans. That uh, there is another time that you can devote to sermon preparation or bulletin preparation or things of that nature that people need to take the priority and people need to be privileged over other things. Now we know that life is not all about work that we know we must be reconciled to God and each other in Christ, and we know we obtain the resurrection this way. But as we've seen, all the conditions are right for us to make work our lives if we don't watch it. Work will become life unless we actively prioritize otherwise. Because the Christian is absolutely to work, but the work must not become his or her idol. We must labor with our hands, not only for our benefit, but for the benefit of others. We must never judge the value of each other in terms of labor and productivity. Our Christianity must just suffuse our lives and be manifest in the workplace. We need to make time to prioritize people in the kingdom, people in our families, and serving people in the community, even if that means we find ourselves unemployed. So may we seek to glorify God in our lives and work in all we do to make sure that we are serving Jesus and his purposes above all things. And so glad you've joined us. We hope that you've been benefited by this. If you thought it was a great message, please share it with uh, your friends, family, and others on social media. Uh, if we can be of some service, if you'd like to ask some questions about some of the things we've talked about, if you need to talk, as a person, you're very important, uh, more important than a lot of other things going on. So we'd love to hear from you. If you pray for you, we'd love to do that. We'd love to be able to meet with you. If you'd like to come and assemble with us or learn more about us, please contact us. Find out more about us at VenturChurchOfChrist.org. We're also on many forms of social media. If I personally can be of any service, please contact me through my website at TheVerboVitae.com. That's www.DeVerboVitae.com. We again thank you. Have a great day.